0: So here's what I want to do. I want, I want to return uh, this morning to a passage that I actually preached uh, years ago now uh, from Romans 8. The first sermon series I did as senior minister at Taste Creek was on Romans 8. Um, as I've said, I've been in Scotland visiting um, our missions partner over there for the past 10 days, and I must admit that I was overly optimistic about um, my ability to slip away and write a sermon while doing a mission trip and all that stuff, and uh, my schedule was very, very uh, busy, which is a good thing. I, I, I had a lot of speaking opportunities and it was great, um, combined with the jet lag. So I just did not have a time to uh, uh, go to Mark 13 and write a sermon. For those visiting, we're, in, we're doing a sermon series, Mark 13, or excuse me, John 13 through 17. I just didn't have an opportunity for, to get to John 13. Uh, there was one day I could have broken, I, I will admit, there was one day I could have broken away. Uh, the, one of the last days I was there with my laptop to prepare a sermon uh, from John 13, um, or I could have gone to St. Andrews to play golf, um, so turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, and uh, we will uh, reuse the sermon so that I could play St. Andrews, and it was, it was worth it. It was wonderful. There is a passage. This Romans 8 passage was on my heart all week long, um, and I'll explain Why that is. Verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word of the Lord. Help us to see you, O God, as our highest treasure, our greatest reward. Help us to see you as worthy of any and all persecution that comes our way. Lord, we need this. We need this passage. We need this promise. We need this assurance. Because in so many ways, uh, we continue to be exiled. We continue to be marginalized. And, Lord, it's continually more difficult to, to... follow you, um, to walk in your ways, uh, to hold to your truth. And uh, we are more and more experiencing what our brothers and sisters have experienced throughout the world and throughout history, that to live for Christ is to die, because this doesn't make sense to the world. Jesus, his kingdom is offensive to this world. And so, uh, Lord, we're, we're learning that. Um, we're struggling as we learn it. Um, I pray that this morning and this sermon will be used by you to help us learn that even more. Sure, uh, assure our hearts that you're worth it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, that might seem like a strange passage to use to communicate kind of some of my thoughts coming off of uh, my time in, in Europe. Um, but, but here's why. I've now visited three of our four missions partnerships. Uh, we, we have what we call missionary part. We do short-term mission trips. We support international uh, missionaries. We send missionaries, all this stuff. But we put a lot of our resource, effort, and energy into these partnerships of indigenous leadership within cultures where we come along them, support them, and not just financially, but with our time, effort, prayers, all that. And I've visited now three of our partnerships since we started this. Um, I've visited uh, Togo, I've visited Macklin in Togo, West Africa. Um, visited uh, Filomino in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico in Valladolid. Um, and this was my year to visit our partnership in Scotland, Andy Longwe. And um, I expected this one to be uh, the most enjoyable. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to Scotland, I'm going to Europe and all of these things, uh, but I was surprised. Uh, Because I actually found this one to be, uh, well, there's no other way to say it. I found found this to be the darkest one. Uh, And that's that's saying something. Uh, You know, with our partnership in in Africa, uh, we're experiencing things like voodoo and witchcraft and Um, deeply demonic, uh, satanic activity, alive and well there, um, experiencing um, the influence of Islam, uh, really taking over that region of the world. Um, I remember preaching in Togo while uh, the the Islamic call to prayer was going out. Uh, Mexico, uh, we encountered the excessive poverty, the corruption of government, which is just horrendous, um, battling many different... Um, heretical strands of expressions of Christianity, um, that they're so doctrinally um, thin there that there's all these different, you're constantly having to help them understand the true, uh, the true gospel and, and orthodoxy, and they struggle with that constantly and battling uh, the legalism of uh, the Catholic's influence over the years and all that stuff. Um, and I was expecting, well, okay, this is Scotland. This is us. This is, this is the West. This is America. This is our heritage. This is where we come from. You'll hear a lot about that next week, and I encourage you to come to uh, the lectures. I had a lot to say before the trip. Now I really have a lot to say. I'm really looking forward to lecturing on the Reformation next week, um, and I was surprised. I was, su- I was surprised to find myself completely depressed and at times even overwhelmed. There is something incredibly unnerving almost eerie about a post-christian society if you do if you do Europe if you do Europe um, without the vacation lens and it's it's totally fine to go do Europe just for the vacation it's totally fine but if you go do Europe without the vacation lens and with the missional kingdom of God lens on it's haunting it's eerie it's unnerving, because it's a post-Christian society. Um, there, it's one thing to have an unreached people. Um, it's one thing to have uh, countries that are starting to know the gospel and is starting to take off, but it hasn't fully taken off a country. It's another thing to visit a society and a culture that has known fully the gospel, that has built an entire society around the gospel. Where Christianity is the foundation of its ethics, education, science, business, art, architecture. Everywhere you look, there's a statue. Everywhere you look, there's a monument. Everywhere you look, there's a beautiful church that was once vibrant. To see a society built on the foundations of the gospel and then totally reject its history. A society that has known Christ and now is actively seeking to rid themselves of Christ in every way is a very haunting experience i could give you so many anecdotes i'll I'll give you this one that for whatever reason this this one just led me it just overwhelmed me and led me to just we just spent time in prayer Um, there's legislation now in the scottish parliament uh where uh, it's always been you, you know the nature of, of European politics there the state is, is, is it's a big state government and um, so there's always been um, there's always been a sense where the uh, the state comes and checks in on your children for the first three years of their life it's called a wellness checkup uh, they come how are they doing um, how's their health um, how uh, you know do you need any help from us um, caught up on vaccines, all those different things. They come and check on the health of the baby. Well, there's, uh, there's legislation now in the parliament to turn that into a health and wellness checkup. And the wellness gets into the worldview. The wellness gets into the parenting. The wellness gets into um, how are you raising them ethically? How are you raising them and their view of sexuality? Um, how are you raising them and their tolerance? And they're searching for any hint of evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity, um, where if you are raising your children in the worldview that we believe and subscribe to and take for granted, um, there is legislation now being debated that the state has the right to step in and intervene because that is abusive. This is, this is Scotland. This is Europe. This is where we are going to be lecturing about um, next weekend. This is our home. And then compounding that, the most fascinating detail is is the the, the just um, almost militant aggressiveness toward its heritage combined with, I I asked the question, I heard that, I asked the question, now hold on, what do they do with Islam? Uh, Because um, say what you want, when you talk about social issues, Islam is with the evangelical presence there as far as the sexual ethics and the family and gender and all those different things. and and they say, oh, they will not touch that because Islam is an untouchable uh, group. You have to allow, because they are a persecuted minority, you have to allow them to flourish um, and and do their thing. So the only ones they're looking for is literally the evangelical Christian worldview. It's fascinating. It is fascinating and depressing what is taking place in the West and what is coming our way. And all week, I felt like I was touring the ancient ruins of Christianity. This thing that I believe is true, that I'm giving my life away to, that I'm basing my entire eternity upon, I felt like I was touring its ruins. I felt like I was strolling through the graveyard of the gospel, and yet I was also at the same time living with this lovely community of exiles, these members of the Free Church of Scotland, a remnant of Reformed Orthodoxy. It's the largest evangelical expression in the country, and our membership is 10% of the entire denomination. It's how small it is, but it's the largest presence, 12,000, on a Sunday morning, gather for worship. And so I was with this lovely community of exiles, this remnant of Reformed orthodoxy, so small in comparison to, and so hated by their society at large. And I kept thinking about this passage. This vision of them all day long being regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Not the slaughter of martyrdom, but the slaughter of Western progressive secular society. The language I used with them that resonated and they said, that's it is the title of my sermon. I was like, it's as if you all are the slaughtered sheep of secular society. And make no mistake, it's coming here. I, um, I cannot stand the paranoia within the church and within politics in our day. I cannot stand the fear-mongering and all of that stuff. Um, however, the trends are obvious, okay? Now, I will say this. Because I did have people after the sermon come up to me, particularly some of you uh, from the older generation, uh, who came up to me and said, I'm just so overwhelmed and depressed. Um, I will say this. There are differences that I think are important differences to understand between what's going on here in the States and what's going on in um, secular Western Europe. The most significant being the next generation. I am telling you, if you think what we are doing with campus ministries here. Is, it, oh, it is enormous. It is enormous what we're doing with campus ministries and the unlikely reformed resurgence that we've seen with the likes of John Piper and Tim Keller and all this stuff. We're an entire generation. They call it the young, restless, reformed generation. So you've got that movement along with the campus ministry work where, where Scotland says, I think that might keep it from being the way it is here because we lost the generation and you all still focus on the generation. So I, I don't want to be... Paranoid, I don't want to do. it's a one-to-one correlation, But I will say, without a doubt, in some ways, when you go over there, you are visiting our future. Um, without a doubt, the imperialistic armies of Western, secular, post-Christian philosophy have crossed the ocean, have arrived on our shores, and what I experienced these past couple weeks may very well be the normative experience of my grandchildren. And I will confess to you, it was dark, it was oppressive, and it was scary. But in the midst of the despair, we kept coming back in prayer and in conversation to never forget Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Let us not forget the gospel is actually true and it is triumphant, while every philosophy and movement of the world has always proven false and failing. I want to return to a passage I preached my first year as senior pastor TCPC. If nothing else, I preach it this morning. I chose it this morning because my soul needed it after the past week and a half. But I think our cynical, fearful hearts about the state of the world and what is to come probably need it as well. Two points. After that long introduction, they'll be brief. The certainty of persecution and the certainty of promise. That's what we see from this passage. First, the certainty of persecution. Now, before we get to the certainty of persecution, it's really important for us to define persecution. What is persecution? In our, in our, um, in our day of polarized outraged? we tend to view every suffering as a form of persecution. That's what everybody does. They, they turn everything into a persecution. They have this victim-martyr paranoia complex, and it's hurting us. Paul here is talking about suffering, but it is a specific form of suffering at the hands of Christian persecution. The verse that is so compelling here and really sets the passage apart is verse 36. It feels awkward when you're reading Romans 8. He inserts it as this awkward quotation from from Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake. That's the key. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's what he's doing. He is setting the suffering of verse 35 apart as unique suffering that comes to us as followers of Jesus. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. For your sake, we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. So verse 36, all of that nakedness, danger, famine, sword... That's not random tribulation. That is tribulation for your sake. This is nakedness for your sake. This is danger for your sake. This is the sword for your sake. And that qualification is very important. Here's why. Listen, I don't deny that there is a lot of suffering in this room that is very real and very painful. But verse 36 keeps us from projecting any and every form of suffering onto the text. And that's so important. For example, this is not suffering. As a result of, fallen, of a fallen, broken world, this cursed world is broken, plain and simple, and everyone here knows that and is experiencing that. Unemployment, uh, disease, aging, depression, infertility, on and on I could go and unto the ultimate fall diagnosis, which is death. So there is suffering we experience simply because we live in a fallen, broken world. But these sufferings are universally shared and that is not what Paul is speaking about in our text. This is suffering that comes to us because we have chosen to follow Jesus. You don't get cancer because you follow Jesus. You get cancer because you live in a fallen world. This is also not suffering that we endure because of our own sinful choices. Galatians 6, God will not be mocked we, we, will, we shall reap what we sow. So if I were to make sinful choice and I were to lose my job, lose my family, something like that, don't you let me somehow turn myself into a martyr. Lament my persecution. <laughs> I didn't lose those things because I chose Jesus. I lost those things because I chose sin. Sin seeks our destruction and it will have its way. But that's not the suffering Paul has in mind here. Persecution is not suffering of the fallen world, which is universal. It is not suffering of our sin, which is universal. Persecution is a unique suffering that belongs uniquely to the followers of Jesus Christ. It is harder to be a Christian than to be a non-Christian in this world, okay? Do not believe the prosperity teaching. It's harder to follow Jesus, not easier. Because it adds a unique suffering. It is the suffering of following Jesus, It is not dying from disease. It is being killed because you love Jesus. It is not having your home broken into just by criminals. It is the plundering of your property because you love Jesus. It is not the loss of employment due to economic downturn. It is a loss of employment because you love Jesus. It's not prison because of your mistakes and bad choices in life. It's prison because you love Jesus. It's not death because of disease. It's death because you love Jesus for your sake. But here's what is so compelling about the text. Paul seems to think that Christian persecution suffering is as inevitable and unavoidable as all forms of suffering. In other words, nobody thinks they can escape the suffering of the fall, nobody thinks they can escape the suffering of our sinful choices. But Paul is saying, likewise, you cannot escape the sufferings. Of following Jesus. Listen to this. All the day long we are being killed. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. This is how the people of God are regarded. This is our daily routine. We're being killed. This is what we are known for. We are defined as a people standing in line waiting our turn to be slaughtered for Jesus. But that doesn't seem to be us is the problem. That's why we struggle with passages like this. Does anyone actually think that this week you will face famine, nakedness, danger, or sword because you love Jesus? Does anyone actually think that this week you will be slaughtered like a lamb because you love Jesus, as Paul was promising? The answer is no, of course. And I vividly remember when I preached this passage struggling with that very reality, that disconnect. How do we, living in a prosperous, comfortable context with the freedom to practice our faith, relates to New Testament promises that we will be persecuted for our faith. Those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Could not be more clear. How do you reconcile that? And the answer I landed on last time, and it is an answer I am even more convinced after a week in Great Britain is that the certainty of persecution holds true in every context the message the method of persecution is always adapting to every context the certainty of persecution is there in every culture in every context the method of persecution is always adapting to context the west has become so refined so sophisticated, so educated, so progressive that it would never allow barbaric forms of persecution like other cultures have seen. But we are still hated and despised, so the persecution is more refined, more hidden, I would say more insidious, hidden behind the veneer of decency and tolerance. It is the subtle, Marginalization from society, where faith and religious practices are pushed to the private spheres and away from public discourse, where whole belief systems and ways of life have become untenable, wholly indefensible, according to the acceptable way of modern world, where our ethics are no longer debated and considered within the public arena of ideas, but wholly dismissed as intolerant and hateful and unacceptable. So what has happened is either a sheer disdain for us, like you are the ones holding back progress, Christianity is the root of societal problems, it's that, or it's a patronizing ethos. Oh, you still believe that? That's cute. One day you'll be enlightened and realize. It is so subtle, the modern persecution of the west but it is oh so brilliant this the power of this ploy of the evil one much more successful much more successful than imprisoning us or killing us nothing spreads christianity more than trying to kill it off and history has said shown us that you try to kill the church the church explodes Tertullian was right to say that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Everywhere we are a persecuted minority, the church explodes. But the persecution we face is new post Christian persecution, very insidious. We won't kill you, we will marginalize you. We will create what Leslie Newbegin calls plausibility structures an acceptable way of thinking and living that has no room for you in our society anymore. We will question every tenet of your belief system. Our greatest thinkers will direct their intellectual assaults toward your claims. We will make you appear as fools and bigots so that you literally can't believe what you believe and be an acceptable member of society. We won't kill you. We will exile you. We won't kill your children. We won't take your children. We will make your children feel silly and foolish for believing what their archaic, blindly delusional parents and grandparents believed. We will make your children embarrassed of what you believe. We won't shut down your churches. We will that would that would force you underground and churches always flourish underground. Instead, we will marginalize your churches. We will entice your churches and lull them asleep with the songs of postmodernism and the enticements of comfort and wealth and ease and entertainment and consumerism. In other words, we won't kill your churches, we will render your churches impotent. Make no mistake about it persecution is certain. The world still hates Jesus and the followers of Jesus, and we will be persecuted. We are not the exception. In fact, we find ourselves in the heat of perhaps the most effective form of persecution ever devised by the evil one. And it is our blindness that makes it so effective. We are slaughtered sheep of secular society, and we don't even know it, and that's why it's so powerful. Now, I saw the fullness of that, well maybe not the fullness of it. I encountered that in ways I never expected to counter, and it's depressing, and perhaps right now, you are thoroughly depressed. And so people left the first service and said, "Thanks for that, preacher." But that's not all I have to say. It's not all I had to say to the Free Church of Scotland. I spent a lot of time there because I had many thoughts from this past week and I have more, but I will not leave us there because Paul does not leave us there because the gospel does not leave us there. Yes, the certainty of persecution, but let me spend the time we have left with the certainty of promise. In verse 37, Paul responds to the certainty of persecution with this famous declaration, we are more than conquerors. Now, what's strange about that, what's strange about that is he's talking to sheep for the slaughter. <laughs> he talks about famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all the day long, we are being killed for your sake, we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter, and the, ne- the next sentence, the same breath, he calls us more than conquerors. He must have a strange understanding of victory. Well, it only makes sense when you understand the question that Paul is interested in answering. Look at the first word of verse 37. No. No in all these things. He's answering a question in the negative, and the answer goes back to the series of questions of verse 35 that introduces the whole thing. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? these, These things are, he's asking a question, and his answer to that question is no. No one and nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. That is our conquering and nothing else. If the question was, will we face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, then the answer is yes. Yes, we will. But that's not what he is asking. He is asking, shall these things separate us from Jesus Christ? And that is, no. No, they will not. As certain as the promise of persecution, so certain is the inability of persecution to actually work. That is, if Christ is your actual goal. If you treasure anything more than Christ then persecution can work. But if Christ is your treasure, then persecution will fail. Persecution can separate me from my comfort, from my freedom, from my employment, from my possessions, from my family, from my children. Yes, even from my own breath. But no persecution cannot separate me from my Jesus. Therefore, in all of these things, in the loss of all of these things, I am more than a conqueror. I want to ask you a question of application. What is your greatest fear? What is your nightmare? And I want to be honest, I want you to be honest with that, um, and I want to be honest with you. Do you know why... um, that was so convicting for me. here's what was so convicting for me over the past week, is how depressed and fearful I found myself as I started projecting the culture of Great Britain onto our future culture. This is where we're heading, you've heard the narrative, it starts in Europe, it comes to us, this is where we're heading, it feels inevitable, and it scared me, and here's why that's so convicting, because my, my fears revealed my treasure. I found myself fearing the loss of things like tax-exempt statuses and charitable deductions. That's what's gonna go first, right? We're no longer a tax-exempt organization and, um, and m- the money you give to us you can never you, you, is no longer exempt as a charitable donation. That, that's foolishness over in Europe. Uh, charitable de- deductions, that's over, which, means, uh, which will mean the poverty of the American church. We're gonna be broke. How are you gonna pay me? And I'm in a job where I can't say, well, i got to go to another job. i got to keep preaching. <laughs> That's what God has called me and made me to do, whether you're going to pay me or not. Everybody coming down, where well, you can't pay me. And I'm just going to show up, and you're going to show up, and I'll preach and figure something out during the week. It scared me to death. I found myself fearing legislation that would call my preaching hate crime, which would get me fined or even imprisoned. That legislation is taking place over there. I found myself fearing the militant nature of the sexual revolution devouring my children and grandchildren. I found myself fearing TCPC one day being a pub or a nightclub as so many churches in their land now are. You just go down this historic street where my heroes preach and their churches are nightclubs. I found myself fearing so many things, but behind those fears revealed my love of comfort, of power of greed, of vanity, of family, and on and on and on I could go. If Christ is my treasure and my reward, then my greatest fear would be losing my Christ. And brothers and sisters, I saw nothing, absolutely nothing in the secular West that can touch my Christ. Nothing this world can do to me can undo what Jesus Christ has done for me. I love the tense of verse 37. Very noteworthy and significant to Romans 8. It does not say, and perhaps we would expect it to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. But Paul says, there's a definitiveness to this. Paul says, through him who loved us. This, this, the verb there is called an aorist. It a, communicates a past decisive moment. So what past decisive event does Paul have in mind here? You know it before I say it, but I'll say it again. That moment when Jesus was regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. That moment when he was slaughtered on the cross. The decisive moment of Christ's ultimate persecution that forever ensured that no amount of persecution will be able to separate us from him who loves us. What is your greatest fear? If it is anything other than the loss of Jesus then I return from Europe with bad news. Um, I have spent 10 days looking at what I fear is our future, and yes, many of your greatest fears may indeed be realized It's bad. If your greatest fear is the loss of Jesus, because your greatest treasure is the gain of Jesus, then I have really good news for you. I'm back from Europe, I have stared down the fullness of Western secularization and it is as weak and impotent as every other form of persecution Satan has ever devised. There is nothing there that can undo the truth of the gospel. Therefore, if Christ is your greatest treasure, there is nothing there for you to fear. Let me pray. Lord, assure us, our hearts, we admit that we're filled with fear, um, that that our hearts are divided, that yes, we treasure you, but we treasure our comfort, we treasure our safety, we treasure so many different things. Unite our hearts, O God, to treasure you and use the sacrament of communion to do just that. That's what this is for. Whenever we eat and drink this, we proclaim the Lord's death, that decisive moment where you proved you loved us, you proclaim the Lord's death until you return and we have our treasure. May we we be emboldened by the reality and assurance of your gospel love that can never touch, that persecution can never touch and can never take away. Lord, fill us, um, calm our fears and anxieties with the gospel that is now presented in the sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.